0: Okay, welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. I'm delighted that my guest today is Ivan Kaiser, who is the CEO of Red Scout. Ivan, welcome to the show. Hi, good to, good to be here. Um, why don't we kick off when you t- tell us a little bit about your career story, What, what where have you come from and what, what journey have you been on to take to the CEO of Red Scout? Yeah,
1: yeah happy to. Um, I mean, the... The, the the personal journeys i'm i'm french originally i you know was born in paris a long time ago um and um i had this journey of growing up where we we moved a lot i lived in asia i lived in the us um the uh, my father was a consultant so stories about apples and trees and things not falling very far from one another uh but i so i, I had this journey of um of yeah like moving a lot being exposed to a lot of different uh, worlds, people doing having very different lives than me. Um, by and large, people being quite entrepreneurial. I think there's just something when you interact with folks who've made really dramatic life decisions to move from one place to another, uh, where you just engage with people who have very unique and personal um, journeys. All of that w- w- uh, w- while all of that was was happening, and I I was very bad at school. I had like a very tough time through school. Um, I'm quite dyslexic. Uh, And so like I I skirted by managing to get through college, but the experience of like normality was very challenging for me because like and so I had this like funny dual experience of growing up through the French school system, which is pretty conventional um, and very grade based, which I failed radically at. And then but getting to interact with a bunch of humans around me who were either very different than me living in Asia and therefore didn't care at all what my grades were or who almost through their life journey had had um these these moments in their lives in which they had decided to do something very unconventional like we lived in um, mainland China in the like mid-90s uh like a very very difficult time and so the people who or complicated time at least so the people who lived there were, were all people who like showed me different versions of um you decide exactly who you want to be uh, and that's probably the safest route. It might not work, but definitely doing what other people, th- becoming what other people tell you to be um, is, is is doomed. Um, and so a little bit like following that example, as soon as I could, um, I knew I was going to move to uh, away and I wanted to move to New York because it was the biggest place I knew. Um, and I, uh, in school, uh, ended up getting a job at CBWA in Paris uh, like as a, as a like mid school, like a breakier uh, job, but entirely in the mindset of saying, what are places where I could find some fit um, that are inherently global and American and cultural. And so I, I really was thinking of it as like uh, an escape hatch. And so um turns out, I don't know because of how well uh, thought through the plan was or just sheer luck, but it it worked out. And so two or three years later, I I switched between a couple agencies and managed to convince somebody at WPP to transfer me over to New York. Um, And I arrived in New York 17 years ago, um, having never actually been there. Like my first day in New York was the day I moved there uh, to live my life. But entirely in this mindset of being like I had found an industry that values originality um, and singular voices rather than conformity so that that really appealed to me and I decided to go to a place um, which had always been described to me as inherently diverse which was good for somebody who had never really felt like um, they fit in particularly um, and so yeah and it, I, and as you know the, the strange experience of being somebody who's uh, grown up moving all the time. And it was like a very, um, a, a, like a structural aspect of my upbringing. Um, New York is the place that I've lived the longest. Um, and every year I am convinced that next year I will move to some other place. And then I ask myself the question, you know, fundamentally, is there a place where I will be able to be more challenged by diverse people around me? The answer is no. Um, and so, and I, you know, I, I love the work that I do and I love doing it here. Um, because uh because it's a good combination of uh that external constant and never ending external stimuli. That's a, great, um,
0: that's a great that's yeah. a great story. So when you when you were when you were in um advertising what what kind of roles were you in
1: I, I was a I was a planner first at TBWA corporate which did like these sort of big anthemic uh advertising yeah. for for baby uh french brands are usually like former uh government monopolies which of the orange telecom uh, air france that sort of thing um and then uh did a did like yeah that kind of stuff and then i i went to wpp to start a small digital agency i was 23 uh you know i think to, to some extent it was a little bit of do you speak english well enough uh, do you know how the internet works? And I was lucky to be at the right time at the right place, um, so that that sort of um, propelled me forward. Um, and then, so the, the the way I got to Red Scout was I um, I had a, a couple jobs at was at, at Hill and Knowlton, which is a PR firm for a little while. I was I was honestly holding on to to get my green card. Uh, got married to uh, my wife now, fiance then, who's American. Got the green card. Quit on the day the green card showed up. So that tells you exactly how much of a deliberate plan it was. And then sort of started to find my way. I worked at Coded Theory for a while, which was an incredible school at the time of like understanding what mature agencies, just at the right level, there were like maybe 150 people um, with a really clear value prop around editorial work and the power of UX um, with people who like lived and breathed um, the, the internet and the emergent, um, but the, the, the internet as like a creative canvas to reimagine what how businesses work. Um, and, uh, you know, let me hold, a, a, about nine years ago after having started a small firm for a little while, um, I met Jonah decent who founded Red Scout 20 years ago. Um, who's quite a force and convinced me in spite of all my objections um, because I was convinced I was going to start another company um, to join nine years ago, and and I, I'm eternally grateful to him for for figuring out that I was maybe like ready for to be a grown up and and take responsibility and um, help lead. And so I, I we got to work together for two or three years. Um, he left or retired, like his turnout was over. He had like done his run um, and and decided that the, he wanted to do extraordinary things with the the rest of his career, which he's doing now. Um, and, um, yeah, took over leading Red Scout about five years ago, uh, which is an amazing sense of timing on my part. So just after a f- navigating a founder handoff, I got to experience COVID, which, um, the it's, it's, it was a good accelerated lo- le- lesson in, in what leadership and agencies looks like. Um, so that gets us, yeah, that gets us to about here.
0: So, so to the uninitiated, how, how would you describe Red Scout as, as a company? What What is it? Yeah.
1: That's, that's, that's such a good question because it, it's also, um, it's an agency that's existed for 20 years, uh, which is like anybody who knows agencies, like there's there's a lot that happens in businesses that have been around for 20 years and have not scaled to the reaches of places where you've worked at or, you know, some of the like the, the names that we know, which become companies beyond their people. Um, so I, there's sort of two answers that I get. Um, practically, Red Scout's a brand strategy consultancy. Not that complicated. We are a boutique. Uh, we um, do it very well. And the fundamental tools of any good brand and, you know, some, you say brand and innovation, brand and design doesn't really matter. It's all the same sort of premise. If you're doing brand strategy work, design is inevitably a component of that. Innovation, and we'll talk about it more, is inevitably a component of that. But the, the fundamental, so brand strategy consultancy is the the, the most straightforward def- uh, descriptor and the capabilities within that kind of work are always the same. There is insights work. Do you understand something about where the market is going, what the consumer wants, or what your internal culture is about? Um, and can you reveal it in a way that is interesting? There's obviously lots of research that comes with that. Um, there is a strategy component in which you're building the tools of decision-making and yeah, sure, writing positionings, but also principles, messaging, like everything that's going to be the tools of operationalizing a brand. And there's evidently every time a creative component to bring it to life. And we have a design studio in-house and we do a lot of sometimes web work, sometimes creative work, sometimes storytelling work. Ne- we, you would never hire us as a creative shop. But sometimes when you're doing that, that fundamental brand strategy work, manifesting it is, is critical. Um so that's yeah, like, like brand strategy. obviously the the simple the, the shorthand.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that's to to me the really interesting part is, you know, without the creative component, it's a sort of deck, you know. And so having people who can take that and bring it to life, I think makes a ton of difference.
1: Yeah,
0: the work you work you do.
1: I I think I mean you're you're obviously right. Uh, there is. An interesting, um, it, w- what what I've enjoyed working at Red Scout, and not, you know, I came from advertising, and then I came from digital agency, so I had a real sort of appetite for seeing strategy in motion, in action. What what I what I've loved about the work we do is that we, because we are inherently agnostic, it allows us to to of of, of application. It forces us, in order for us to be, I mean, as and as you know, like a lot of times, agencies are defined by the reason why clients come to them more so than the offering itself. And so clients come to us when they are convinced that uh, the application of the work should be channel agnostic or touch point agnostic. Um, sometimes you say like, when defining your value proposition is like sort of an existential question. And of course, if you do that, you're in a moment of change, you're pre IPO, you've got to convince the markets, you're in a different business, or you're uh, uh, a legacy brand that needs to reinvent itself. Um, once you've defined what your value proposition is, of course, that will go to advertising. But it is just as important that it, this idea be defined to manage, to engage internal culture mm-hmm. or to speak to public markets. And yeah. so that, that's a That's the the fun of the work that we do, which is you're totally. It has very direct, tangible applications, usually across you know one of those three or four touch points internal culture we do a lot of that how do you rally an internal team to believe that you know our friends at best buy have a future in the time of amazon mm-hmm. uh, or how do you talk to public markets about you know for many of these publicly traded companies that indeed this move this reinvention connects to, to a brighter future um uh, go to market um is, is definitely a component particularly for like companies that are scaling or are well-funded startups that are at moments in which they're really operationalizing their marketing or similarly um innovation like how do you drive drive product differentiation and so to the way to think about that every 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 agency is sort of a trade-off between for example, our opportunity is the fact that we're channel agnostic our imperative is to demonstrate the implications of a strategic idea across all of these things
0: mm. So how, how much of your work is, you've you talked about the sort of very high level um, brand
1: corporate,
0: how much work do you do product and product innovation? Is that a component of what you do or is it less and less of what you do?
1: So that that's a really interesting thing. Um, there is um, there is a, a still a, I think it, like innovation can mean a lot of things. Like what innovation meant Ten years ago and what what scout was historically quite famous for was by and large cpg innovation new products that would sit on the shelf and that still exists and there are categories that are still very driven by that and we can debate a little bit sort of the structural reasons why often it has to do with nature of the distribution channels so uh booze still does a lot of uh of product like that sort of almost conventional traditional product innovation in part because of the challenges they have with marketing and and uh, the nature of distribution, what's on shelf matters. Um, what we've seen is that CPG innovation has shifted quite a bit from big legacy companies, the Pepsicos, Coke, etc., craft doing a lot of the innovation in house to them becoming very uh, very good MA players. Um, and so we, we've seen a lot of that that DTC work. What's interesting, though, is like the innovation work I took for us has shifted from being really, really focused on CPG to doing a lot of experience innovation, um, experience design uh, work, um, you know, define, uh, membership experience design. like the, the We've gone a lot from like things that sat on shelf, which yeah. was a really sort of nucleus, to uh, service layers, net new revenue streams. How do you turn, uh, how do you build long-term client customer relationship, which I think speaks to a bigger pattern of, the way marketers are thinking differently about how you create growth, that just like claiming shelf at Walmart, which was really the name of the game for a long time, has now been, on top of that, there's been that layer of, oh God, okay, now I'm selling widgets. How do I attach to my widget a service that allows, that earns me the right to have an ongoing relationship with my customer? That's a version of innovation that we that we really stepped into.
0: So... um One of the things that you know, one of the things that interests me in a lot of what you're talking about is this tension. Well, you've got tension between legacy brands and challenger brands. Yeah. And you've also got tension between legacy companies who sort of have a history and a, and a, a real experience in managing brand or brand management, and then you've got these new challenger brands. Who have an in, a, level, a huge level of inexperience and plus they're driven so much by their investors to grow. And we're seeing time and time again, the sort of these legacy, these, um, challenger brands falling on their face because the VCs are just too aggressive, um, with trying to accelerate these brands too fast and they end up, you know, making huge mishaps. I mean we and and I mean one of the ones that I think is pretty fascinating is Oatly, Um you know, a poster child for creativity inside CPG. But when you take that away and you look at some of the business decision making um they've made, um, some really difficult operational issues that they face because of the pressure to expand really fast. So yeah. I, I think those are really interesting tensions, and if you are trying to craft a brand and a brand story, um, there's obviously a timeline attached to that. How fast can you ramp up this? And sometimes those are misalignments between what the investors believe is possible and what actually is possible. And I think it's interesting thing to manage for.
1: I, yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's true. Um, I think, I, I mean, I, I have a, a couple observations here. I, I think, um, I think what we're describing by and large is an ac- incredible acceleration of the transformation of how the marketing funnel can actually work.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I, I think the, the biggest difference between legacy brands and challenger brands is that somebody like, uh, you know, burn the boats, right? Like there is no way of rebuilding uh, a Coke, a Ralph Lauren or whatever, these these sort of, these brands that are so deeply intertwined in our cultural zeitgeist, that was soap operas. That was like all of, you know, national attention being gravitating to a thing. And so we had a thing in common Um, and it was also deeply connected to physical retail. Uh, when when you showed up, you went, you know, the retailers did this amazing thing of making us think that it was a normal thing to get in our cars, pay for the gas, drive all the way to their warehouse, which they barely embellished with glaring lights, make a thousand decisions in as fast as we possibly could, because we just want to get out of the store as quickly as we can. And in that context, that symbiotic relationship between mass advertising that is culturally driven and gives us things that we have in common. And physical retail is really, really effective. And so you poured that forward and you're like, well, okay, wait a second. The media ecosystem is much, much more fragmented. It's really hard to know what like brand to create, to find really good brand advertising canvases. Uh, E-com for many of these businesses is a driving channel. In e-commerce, you do not have the luxury of, oh, well, now that I'm in this aisle, sure. I'll buy this thing that wasn't planning the, the, the ecom relationship or e e-com, ecom transactional uh, transactions are really really effective and so I think there is a bit of uh, there's a there's a what we're experiencing in what DTCs are going through is just an incredible acceleration of the transformation of marketing and and Oatly did successfully or found successfully through voice you could say the same thing of Liquid Death uh, a way to say to tell really radical provocative brand stories. But you're right, the scaling, the infrastructure scaling, like the the, uh, behind it is no one in their right mind would think you could scale a brand this quickly. Um, And I think, you know, on the other side of like all the other DTC brands that have uh, been much less successful at creating these salient brands that break through the conversation, and yet, to your point, fueled by VC money, have managed to scale their revenue, they have done so at the expense of margin because they get taxed by all the platforms. They have done so at the expense of da- primary data because the platforms don't give them a real understanding of their customers as uh, of the customers are. And they have done it at the expense of building any form of ongoing relationship with their customer, because a customer acquired through uh performance advertising, sent directly to a PDP. Why in the world would they feel any sort of sense of sense of attachment? This was a transactional relationship to start with. Sure, I've bought your pick your thing, but buy, but it's still a transactional relationship. So I think your I think your the, the tension between legacy and and challenger is very real. In part because it's really unclear. I think for these challenger brands, what the what the marketing funnel uh, should look like. Uh, in the next years, given the change in platforms,
0: and so we've kind of got a we kind of got a reckoning situation, right? Because the money's dried up. There's no more like you know that's what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing um, very expensive to advertise on these channels, and we're seeing less and less money available and a, and a, a demand from the investors to, to generate revenue. It's almost if I'm interpreting what you're saying is when you go back to the sort of the Ralph Lauren cokes of this world that you know what your sort of point is they had the luxury of history and and um, capitalising on a moment where you could get mass reach and you could be culturally significant and that re- that continues to be resonant that power continues to be resonant. And then on the other side, you've almost got these wannabe brands who who can't escape, you know there's something there's a whole generation of consumers now who they almost want novelty. They almost want to see the next brand and they get the the threshold of boredom of a brand it just accelerated. So maybe Glossier was the coolest, you know, beauty brand, and everyone was pointing at it as being the next L'Oreal, but it never—it didn't quite make it. And there's somebody else who's come along. So I wonder if we're seeing sort of like these two streams: one is sort of legacy, culturally significant brand. and then the other is the sort of brands that are trying to build loyalty but have a real challenge. In trying to build that loyalty, because the cost of entry are, are, are so relatively low. In you know, of course, given account some of the other things that it's a contradiction of some of the things I've said. But, but you know, I found it fascinating. And looking on Instagram the other day, of course, you're familiar with the the French. The I think it's called the Breton shirt. It's like the the, the striped shirt. I saw yeah. an Instagram ad with all these famous people who who were wearing these shirts. And, and the Instagram ad was saying, you too can wear this shirt, and we have them. Well, you could not find this brand. Who, who was behind it? Was it Ralph Lauren? No, no, it wasn't. You did it all, but it's digging, and it's some trading company out of Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we've got such a weird world of brands and transactions and, and and things that are like very, very different from what they used to be. Um and as you said, the final changing, if I'm to buy something, I don't even need to know that this is in fact a brand. All I know is they have a product that kind of it looks kind of cool and they're in my eyesight and they have my attention. So yeah. it's a it's a very interesting world right now.
1: Yeah. I- I, yeah i mean that, that's that's almost an understatement and i i you know I, to some extent i think we've talked about the acceleration of e ecom penetration um during covid um i think it is that's also led to uh the the having less ipos uh legacy businesses focusing on survivals also means that while this change has happened and like we're sort of realizing that actually like the acceleration has normalized. So we've just had four years or so of almost expected increase in e-com penetration. But to me, what's most jarring is during that period of time, we've had very few like transformative tech IPOs. We've had very, uh, an underinvestment from legacy businesses in transforming their own businesses. So I think we're all a little bit behind uh sort of catching up to this change, um, I, I think this may be. I, I make two two observations based on on what you were saying. Um, I think there is one question which is th- that it raises to me, which is uh, what is the nature of brand and brand preference, and why does brand preference exist? I think that's one question that it raises for us because we call a lot of things brand that it is not. Uh, brand awareness is not brand. That that actually brand awareness. It, as a metric which i know is a topic of interest doesn't measure brand awareness at all it measures name recall which is a very very different thing than do you know what this thing stands for and uh, does it mean something to you which is sort of what we imply so i think there's a question about like what what is brand and then there's a question around yeah what uh, what is the new marketing funnel and what are things that are that we need to uh reinvent or accept differently in order to create difference. and i think those two ideas are, are related to me, the reason why um, I so I see less of a of a of a consumer change uh towards like novelty, because I think you could say some of the greatest brands in the world, the greatest legacy brands, auto, apple for that matter, also have traded on novelty, right? Like I have the new iPhone, uh and, and they are so they also trade on novelty somehow. So that feels like an absolute human trait. Um I think the question is. Um, these brands, because of, because of the, the cultural, um, because of the, because they've become this sort of shared cultural vernacular, you know what it says that I own this particular car brand. I know what it says that you have, um, you know, a, an Apple laptop versus a Microsoft one. Those are like the powers of these, of these master brands, these like universal brands, that sit in my mind as much as yours, whether or not I'm a customer, right? Like it, That's the power of them. And so that sort of indicates a particular acquisition funnel. These brands exist in our world. We, through product launches, through campaigns, I can activate that demand um, in, and then I can drive to a transaction. And loyalty is built top of the funnel in a way. I am loyal to Apple because I know what the brand stands for, not just because of the, of the mechanics. And the, and the same could be said um, uh, in in you know auto or whatever, like the loyalty exists in what you and I understand these these brands to be. That's the that, there's a lot of currency there, and I think you're right that in when we're thinking about today, building loyalty in that way feels impossible. Um, you, we're not going to create these mass brands that have shared cultural awareness because the top of the funnel is broken, and to your point about DTC, we have not really figured out how to build. Loyalty and connection post sale. So we don't can't do it by creating new Coca-Cola's, new apples, new whatever that have that are like become our universal voc- vocabulary. And we acquire customers through a paid paid, paid paid advertising, which also doesn't build any kind of shared anything, any kind of depth. Um, so to me, that's that's that weird tension that we're in. It's just like, oh my God, like how do we create depth? Uh, how do we not create things that are sort of surface layer? Um, because depth is what creates preference. And preference partic- is is where, is actual broad brand is. I think when we say we're building a brand, we mean we're building irrational preference for this brand. Uh, and we don't, we don't, we lack the tools now. Oh, I can't hear you for some reason.
0: Sorry, I apologize. Wait. Um, Yeah, we've also gone super into into narrow costing and to go in, Using data to find our audiences, and you know, um, we don't, we we're, we're narrow. We want we go we go narrow. We find segments, um, and so there's a sort of belief that you can find your base and build that base, and you don't want to waste money going after people who yeah. have no interest. So there's a whole science of that performance marketing on, you know, acquiring the right customers. Um, what we're finding, of course, is when that plateaus, which it frequently does, no one really has an answer as to where to go next.
1: Yeah, yeah. it, it is a fascinating sort of tension. I, there is some truth to it, but like, I, I like the notion and I, I say this often that like fundamentally market penetration is a, is a function of frequency, not reach, right? Like hundred million transactions is hundred million transactions I don't care if it's a hundred million people or one person doing it you know a hundred million times a day to me it's the same thing uh, in the end um so there is a logic to that to saying um and let's let's drive for frequency um and you know again if we go to the sort of the examples of great great brands um Apple has figured that out Google has figured that out you create ecosystems which drive, extraordinary frequency and frequency drives penetration and and you know the um which is but but i think what's happening which is 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 the beginning of a good idea and no follow-through we said oh we're gonna find our customer base in order to target them because the platforms really incentivize us to do that find our segment drive better conversion on a particular segment, build a brand that people really see themselves in so that my Instagram ads convert better. But then most of these brands, particularly the TTCs, have no real reasons to re-engage. So they are shallow and focused, which is the worst. Like you have to, you can pick, um, but if you're going to be focused, you got to be deep. Um, so I, I think that that's to me, the like the real opportunity, just like, because otherwise it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're just going to create a bunch of brands that will run into ceilings, will be extraordinarily easy to pick off competitively, and uh, and are extraordinarily vulnerable to the platforms and how they price acquiring these audiences.
0: I mean, I think I think it's fascinating that um, like this yoga brand, Hello. Yeah. So if you look at their playbook, they're doing nothing that's really different from Lululemon. You know, they're basically Lululemon for 2021, 2023. Their playbook is exactly the same, but they're just using those digital channels, uh, you know, more aggressively. Um, and they're beholden to a bunch of influencers that is, that is shaping the brand for them. So there's a whole kind of this idea of control. And giving up control and believing that influences can really drive your brand forward is becoming and that's a big, you know, a very pervasive um piece of thinking right now. Yeah that that, that it's you know we've got to align with influencers, influences uh can move our brand forward. And you've got this balance between who, who is Selling here? Is, is it Are the influencers selling themselves or are they selling the brand? And how do you even manage for that? And so you get, you, you know, for the marketer of today, I mean, that's just another layer of complexity. But it seems that there's a sort of a belief that there's this ecosystem that you can kind of hack your way into. And, and if you do it right, you can be successful. I mean, Aloe, I mean, they're doing, you know, they have events. They have, you know, experience-driven uh, retail. They have, you know, digital experiences that really try to build loyalty. Um, they've been going for about a decade. They're a 300, I think, a 300 million dollar brand, which is a drop in the ocean compared to Lululemon. But, yeah. but you know. I think you've got a bunch of marketers who look at these companies and say, "Well, we just need to do what they're doing and hire a bunch of influencers, get on TikTok." And I think there's, I think that kind of stems from. I always feel it's like this whole idea of we're not your, we're not your mother's brand. There's always, there always seems to be like a space. It's a sort of default like a generational default. But if you have a big player, you know, Samsung have tried so hard. <laughs> yes. And not be Apple, you know. Oh, and, and for a long time, Reebok tried to do the same thing. But sometimes it works. Sometimes it's sort of just a generational vacuum that someone can step into and say, we're just a little savvier. We just let, we understand you guys a little bit better than the big guys and yeah. sometimes
1: that sometimes that works and yeah it, it, or 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 even and and often the, uh, proving that um by changing the nature of the conversation think like that's yeah. a lot of what's happened with with um with lulu which is like a real real orientation away from uh performance and towards like lifestyles and communities um i mean t-mobile did the same um that's sort of like how do you find a, a real contrarian route? And I I agree with you that generations are probably if, if anything, the most structural thing and the thing that as marketers we can count will happen again. Uh th- there will be a new generation again and again and again. And and um and and that that in itself is a opportunity for brands. Um I think it, I think and one of the things that I've I've been interested in, in that sort of logic of like, okay, well, what is the playbook as, as marketers, as consultants, as advisors, you sort of have to like step, step away and say, oh, we should use the, you know, you and I could have said five years ago, four years ago, we should use the Oatly playbook. And then we all realize, wait, hold on. That's a pretty thin brand that feels very of a moment. So you know, the, the longevity of it is a little complicated. You're right that it runs into issues of, of, of scaling and um, production. And then it's underlying sort of premise because it was so messaging driven now gets challenged. Okay. Well, like, I think we can, but, but I do think that that what is, what is right is, uh, brands like building good brands needs to be, to change the nature of the conversation and engage, like solve a different problem. Um, And uh, demonstrate functional differentiation in a different way. And weirdly, like, I mean, Oatly was the barista channel, a cool differentiated voice and a way to justify or to speak to a real unmet need, which is to justify to your friends um, that you weren't actually consuming a health product that they usually used to be, but actually a trendy thing. And you sell milk like you might streetwear. Okay, fine. Or on running. Which says, "Hey, you know what? There is a new place as as the Adidas and Nike just are are gravitating towards streetwear and fashion and collabs with the Kanye's, etc. They're like, no, wait a second. There is functional innovation again. Is theirs better? I don't know, but it is a a, a level of it changes the conversation and it offers a level of depth that's really that's really different. Um, and I do think that it's interesting that all these brands are emerging." beyond conventional advertising and i do think that that's like a thing to take away which is like to communicate depth you need rich creating canvases places you can explain things places where you can or to enter to your point a minute ago you can talk to only the subset of people who give a damn because if you try to take a message like that and put it, make it mass you're going to bore 90 percent of the audience um who wasn't going to engage anyway
0: yeah, I think that, I think that's a really good point I think on running is is really interesting as a as a brand that yeah ex- exactly what you said you know let's let's find a space that we can sort of feels right and um you know I think they've got you know as as you said earlier the, this whole idea of being agnostic to the solution. And thinking of a, like, you look, I look at on running and yes, they do advertising, but I mean, there's a really good interview. I think it was on Bloomberg with the founder. And he just had this uh, jujitsu thought, which was, you know, we were going into retailers and we were doing slideshow decks all about our performance and our functionality, you know, okay. XXX. Someone said, screw that. Let's take them for a run. <laughs> you know, a simple like move away from the rational left brain thing about you know how many you know whatever the, the pressure or how this thing is made to find out emotionally how these things feel if you actually have an emotional connection with them as a retailer, you're going to sell them. And it yeah. completely transformed their business. That that simple, that was one of the most radical things they did. Create an experiential sales process to bring retailers on board. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think again, it's just like you you gotta think about understanding who you are and how you can tell those stories in really interesting ways that aren't just advertising. So now um I, I think they've got into, you know, they have this, they have OAC, which is their athletic club with professional athletes, but they let their athletes do things that no other brands do. For example, like the US, I think probably three quarters of the US team do a podcast where they're incredibly open about what it's like to be a professional runner yeah. in a way that you wouldn't here from a Nike, you know, they just wouldn't do that and they're even sort of expanding into what does an event look like, you know, what does an on sponsored running meet look like. So there's, 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 you know, these, I, I think there are, there's, there, and I think in that case, I think where they were really smart was going public at the right time and generating the financing to allow them to do these things at scale. And yeah. not everyone has that opportunity, right? They they don't all have that access to that capital that we need to because they were they were like, we need to we we know who we're going after and we need the capital to go after those guys. And we we can't just be tiny and try to do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely true. But I, I, that uh, you know, it's 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 always there's always a a mixed bag of taking lessons from the winners because uh, the is it how much of that is luck? Uh, how much of that is good timing? I think you're right. But I definitely agree with you that it feels like a strategy that is held at the deepest, like at the center of the way the business operates, and that allows you to have things like the. Uh, retailer sales process uh, being as emphatic a manifestation of the brand as what, you know, you and I would have conventionally thought to be a brand canvas. And when that can happen, you build the proof points first, right? You build the differentiation first, um, which I I think is, you know, a little bit of the, I, I love advertising and I love great brand storytelling. I just find it easier when it's talking about actual things that are Rather saying things that you wish existed, um, yeah. and, and yeah. that requires that sort of sh- shifting the the center of gravity, or really committing—rather not shifting, but committing—to the center of gravity of the brand being having to be in things that are tangible.
0: Should we should we switch the conversation a little bit um, sure. on onto talent? Oh yes. Um. So when you're when you're looking at talent and you're looking for somebody who's going to be great at Red Scout. Um, obviously, you talked about the fact you have different disciplines, but do you believe there's a sort of um, some characteristics in terms of the type of people that uh, succeed uh, that you're looking for? Uh,
1: yeah, that, that's such a that's a fun question. Um... I think you had asked me um a little while ago about like how do we get clients to embrace creativity and imagination. And like that's a that's a good, like that's like sort of core skill, right? Like so you think, oh, somebody who's gonna be successful. I, I was sort of pondering that that question in part because it never occurred to me to ask myself that. Uh and I was like, oh God, that's a good question. He's smarter than me. I should probably have an answer. Um I think because of the nature of the work that we do, the thing that ends up making somebody successful, successful with clients and wanted by clients, but also like personally fulfilled, um, is the ability to make other people believe that change is possible. Like much more so than creativity. Um, we're like, you know, I've worked in ad agencies and I've seen people who just tell you a story and you are transported. That's not us. Um, I think a lot of it is about like, how do I get somebody to believe that change is possible? And and those are the really like unique talents because they're people who internally can help. You know, their peers, the people around them, believe that growth and like personal growth is possible. That they will be able to achieve, or that we can do something that we've never done before. And then with clients, that's the magic thing, right? It's the idea of saying, if I if I'm great at making you believe that change is possible, that uh, earns me the right to tell you really difficult things. I can tell you bad news. Because I've made you believe that change is possible. Uh, I can tell you that, like, we can talk about the fact that your product is undifferentiated. I can talk to you about the fact that most of your customers are pretty poor quality customers because you acquire them purely transactionally. Uh, that's okay. I've earned the right because I've made you believe, I've inspired you to believe that change is possible. So I think that's a lot of, like, that's the 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 skill that we look for. Um, and that requires um, a... Uh extreme honesty with like a, a real desire to like un- to suspend your agenda, to really understand what is going on, what might be the barriers to change, and accepting that the barriers that sit in your mind are true because they sit in your mind. Um, and the um so that that act of suspending your agenda and really understanding it requires deep level of empathy to understand what might be um the the, the voice inside that might. Make you know your colleague um, not say what they were going to say, or more timid, or not allow themselves to have a provocative thought. Um, I think that that's the thing that we look for, um, and you know, and we talk a lot about the the value prop of uh, of the Red Scout experience for for scouts is that is that we want the years that people spend at Red Scout to be the trans- transformative years in their career, um, and. So for some of us that takes that's a long time uh to my to my eternal surprise i've been i've been at red scout a long time and for the others less so um although we have pretty high tenure um strangely um but mostly even if we talk about you know the forever scouts so the folks who've left red scout is like they've all gone to do really cool things um and they still talk about that experience as being really meaningful and i think it's that it's not like you know, there are many, many sort of formative places, the widens the TVW, etc. I feel like, sometimes, like people talk about those in different ways. For us, it's very much that, like, are they transformative years? Do you learn about yourself? Do you learn about other people? Um, do you learn about what matters?
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting because I was having a conversation yesterday about this idea of. Um, understanding, I think. I think sometimes there's a naivety in agencies that they don't really understand their clients. It's almost like this this them and us. It's it's often the kind of procedure it's them versus us. And what the reality is in the type of work you're doing, which is a lot of deep work with your clients, ultimately, as you said, bringing these folks on board with you making yeah. them part of your team. Yeah. But also fundamentally understanding that they've got to sell it inside the organization. You know, just because you've got five clients on your team, don't, and they're nodding their head, saying, yeah, change is possible, doesn't mean change will happen. Because there's 5,000 people back at HQ who've also got to believe this. Yeah. And then there's, then there's the CMO. Who has not been involved in this process, who comes in at the 11th hour and says, hang on a minute. You know what I mean? So there's yeah. a lot of complexity to, okay. to getting to change,
1: right? Uh, undeniably. Um, I, I think that maybe there are two, a couple of things. One, um, you're absolutely right that this is work that be or, because this is fundamentally cultural work, right? Like um, we talk a lot about like the good strategies about um, the decisions peoples make, people make when no one's watching. Like, and so there's like this, like it is fundamentally cultural work. I uh, The line sounds cool. I don't care. Will it inform decision-making when no one of authority is in the room or no one who cares honestly about the work, not of authority. Uh, actually, probably sometimes it's worth with people of authority. Like, will they want to make sure that that the the, the work um, is manifested in decision-making. So it is fundamentally cultural work. There are a couple implications to that. Um, One thing that we always say is like, the truth is in the building. It is inevitably about finding momentum in an interesting place. Uh, And so you do a lot of internal exploration of like what really motivates people or what's the thing that's standing in the way of behavior or like, and just even the rewriting of the brief constantly for days and days at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Like, like, yeah, no, I, I get that. That's what you, that's the finish line, but what's the problem? The finish line is not the problem. Uh, never. Right. Like it's like the, the, the solution is not equate to the problem.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's a great. I think that's a great point of like the first meeting, the first discussion being incredibly open and, you know, these projects succeed or fail based on whether you align your objectives. And yeah. I think that that opening discussion about what is it you really want to know and really want to learn. And, um, you know, I was talking yesterday about um, a, a friend of mine who very long time ago was sort of doing a lot of work Understanding what was happening to Facebook, mm-hmm. the work she was doing was uncovering all the problems that actually transpired four years later. Yeah, but internally they did not want to hear any of this. Yeah, it was, so that idea of transparency, that idea of honesty, the idea that you that you can accept bad news, and that actually this product. May suck, you know. That's that takes a lot of work.
1: It does. It does. So, and and I mean, it, it is. It's a th- that's a, a task you we carry through all of the work. Like um a byproduct of that is we tend to work with CMOs and CEOs as direct act like active par- par- partners because yeah. you have you know honesty is modeled not. Requested. Uh, So that's the only way to make it happen. Um, And then tactically, we've got like weird tricks, right? That you, you, uh, and I'll, I'll highlight two. One is we do a kickoff. We do a kickoff three to four weeks in. We do a kickoff after research, after an internal initial research. We call it an ambition session, but in every way, it is about stating the ambition of the work. But it always starts with some version of we've done a bunch of stakeholder interviews and talked to people at different levels of organization. And they're telling us this and that. Those two things seem contradictory. Could you please? So there's sort of a enabled honesty where it's like you don't have to be the one that says, I know that the room is all saying that we're going to triple the size of the business in the next five years. But I don't believe that it's possible. That's a really hard thing. Yeah. Much easier to, for us to say, well. We've heard that the ambition is this, which is very exciting. We've also heard that these are five barriers, like the five most common barriers to growth that people are telling us. Can you help us understand what of that is real, what is not? Like every and that sort of that sort of thing. And then the, the, the second thing we do in every deliverable and everything, you think of it as tools. So the only way you affect culture is if you equip people to make decisions. And so the everything that we that we do, like every deliverable, every that we write. You'd write behaviors and RTVs, like all those tools, you have to think of them as tools. So is this one pager an effective uh brand like checking tool for a piece of creative? Or can I use this to onboard a new uh employee? Like, does that language make sense for a new employee? I, and you know, I remember when we did this work with, with Best Buy, there were a set of behaviors, and it was six years ago, it's five years ago, and I remember them. Be human, make it real, think about tomorrow. Um And the test was they had to be used in leadership meeting and they had to be used to onboard like temp employees at and stores in the first 10, 15 minutes. And on on both cases, people had to know what they were doing, but what what to do differently. And so we that and that that forced the language to be really reductive. Um, Make it real. okay? like I know what that means. Uh, uh, be human. Okay. I know like I can actually ha- act like a person uh, and think about tomorrow, which was about saying like, your job is not done when you've sold the product. It's only about when people use it. And th- those like really, really like um, tangible, intuitive tools are a way uh, you create movement. Yeah. Because
0: what, what, what I like about that is it works as a headline And it's understandable, but you can also drill down and and, and view a lot more meaning in each of those. So so you you always worry. Um, I remember I worked on Levi's in Europe when I was back in Europe a long time ago. And there was a lot of work done to tell people actually, specifically retailers, what Levi's was and wasn't. Because it was so open to interpretation. You know, that, that's kind of a lot of the problem with some of the work we do is yeah. that we're so close to it, we know exactly what we mean. But when it gets handed off, someone scratching their head, is it this type of real or is it this type of real? Or is yeah. it human like my grandmother human or is it human like my best friend human? You know, yeah. and so we have to be very careful, right? That we, uh, translate that and everyone understands. but yeah i like i really like that i really like that example and you know the use case of um this is about organizational change yeah you know this is a change of a mindset a change of the way we approach the world and that impacts everyone who works for us you know and that's big stuff that that that's important stuff
1: well, and, and, and if we go back to the beginning of where you started the conversation and that is how you build brand now, because yeah. consumers define brand as does this company do what it says it would. They define brand as most manifested through the interaction with the retail employee, not a piece of creative. They don't often like watch a lot of that stuff. Advertising yeah. reinforces things that are true, but the consumers are so, so attuned to the dissonance between a piece of above the line creative and a tangible experience. So build differentiation in the real so that you have a cool, unusual story to tell, not the other way around.
0: But just uh, moving into the into the final stretch um, what do you think what do you think the um, the Cmo at the back end of twenty twenty three they they're being told to cut costs they're being told to like limit their budget um what what should they be thinking about when maybe to be ready for when they have maybe money to spend i mean what's what what should be on their mind um you know we talked there's some interesting stuff being written about this idea of Revenue versus profit. Yeah. And now we're about profitability. Mm-hmm. The revenue is the expansive mindset. We got to grow. We've got to do this. Profit is about efficiencies. And yeah. so when we get when we flip the switch, what do these guys need to be ready for in your in your mind?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I would think about um, the notion of creating like enterprise value. Um, Like a a way, the the to me, um, if you're trying to create in like in these moments of lean, you create foundational things that have lasting that will have lasting value. So that when inevitably the market becomes flush again, you are not you have a competitive advantage against the competition. Um, These are not like these these tighter times. Are not industry specific, um, and so all competitors are going to be reducing their uh, their spend as well. And so the question is: Are you still building, uh, and are are you building differentiation when um, in moments in which you don't have to be distracted by the war of who's spending more hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, on creative? And and to me, the biggest like lean time CMO challenge is. How do you reclaim a direct customer relationship that is that goes beyond transaction? And I think by and large, that is like a, a, a curse that affects every CMO, whether you're talking about legacy, big retailers who st- have very transactional relationships with their customers and are shifting to e-com. And when they do lose the very last bits of humanity and understanding and empathy that they have, um, or you're talking at the other end about DTC uh marketers who have completely offloaded to platforms their one-on-one relationship. And you know, you'll have multi-hundred million dollar businesses where 80-90% of transactions are originating from paid placements. And and so I think like that to me is the you want to be ready when there is cash again to have a competitive reputation. Otherwise, you're not going to be making margin today, but you're definitely not going to make it make it, be making it. Tomorrow, when there is cash again, and you have to pay platforms uh, more than you should because you have no competitive advantage, you have to pay for every customer acquisition. That's a tax on every single transaction. Um, you're not going to make margin then either. So, this is this is the time to build equity value assets that have longevity. And to me, it is the the, the number one challenge is find ways to reclaim direct and deep. Customer relationships, which I don't really see anybody having enough of.
0: That's cool. Final question. Oof. We have an absolute surplus of strategists. The 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 title has been handed out willy-nilly to literally everybody, and yeah. everybody is now a strategist. In your mind, what distinguishes a real strategist from someone who has a title of strategy.
1: I, I think there's one of the worst thing that's happened. This is this is gonna be like very inside baseball, but um I think one of the worst thing that's happened to this profession is a profound mislabeling. I think there are two very, very different skill sets um in in the business that are uh, that that receive the same title. I um strategists, particularly in creative environments whether they'd be you know in uh in creative agencies, but I've seen them in, in production companies, I've seen them on streamers, etc., are fundamentally voices of culture. They're about what's happening next. Um they're about the and 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 this is the heyday of that, um of identity, of affirming difference, of generational transition, of behavioral change, of like globality, um, of political ideas that are Uh, like just rushing into, uh, into consumerism in the way that we haven't really seen since the 60s. Like, these are really, really cool moments to know what the hell is going on with culture. That's one skill set. And it's a creative exercise. About saying what matters. It's an editorial exercise. It's about having a voice. At the other end, there's consultants. And this is also a very exciting time for consultants because the... Culture of internal organization is changing, the way they're structured are changing, remote work and transition to e-comm and radical new platforms and AI and all that stuff. And so there's an incredible amount of change that needs to be hap- that needs to happen. And that role of empathy, coaching, uh, enablement, inspiring belief is change is also really, really helpful. So I think the mistake we've made is that these are two completely different jobs. And some people will be great at one and absolutely terrible at the other, and inversely, and yet we call it the same thing. So then we're confused. I mean, I like I do a decent amount of hiring of strategists. And that is the most annoying thing. Where like you're amazing, you don't do this at all. I would be much better suited, like it often you know, from coming from creative environments. Some producers are much better consultants than the their their uh, uh compatriots who are who have the title of strategist. Um so I that that to me is the big thing when I think we need to there's there's a there's plenty of work out there for specialists and I think we've done not enough specialization uh in the strategy business.
0: Cool. Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to stop recording and I'm just chat